Hi there, this is David Knorr. I want to welcome you to the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited to finally publish Curvebenders this year, my 11th book, as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. By the way, if you're curious, in short, Curvebenders are your strategic relationships that enable this personal reinvention, this organizational reinvention in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that will dramatically impact the future of how we'll work, live, play, and give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant? If more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I'm inviting to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. Let me ask you, what are you really getting from the public social networks? Have you noticed most are becoming increasingly divisive or highly self-promotional? Are you getting solicited for various products or services from a barrage of people you don't know? I'm seeing an interesting trend, one of micro-communities made up of smaller but more intimate gatherings of like-minded professionals. I've always believed that people fundamentally gather for two reasons, content and community. So what can I learn and who else can I meet that I wouldn't otherwise? That's exactly what we've done. Earlier this year, we launched our private online community called the North Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and their personal reinvention through this idea of non-linear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes from this episode, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. It's where I am every day, engaging now over 2,500 members, sharing exclusive content, resources, and events. So I hope you'll check it out at norgroup.com slash forum. That's N-O-U-R group.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm elated to be joined by someone I've admired from a distance for some time. Michael Watkins, welcome to our podcast. Delighted to be with you, David. It's great to have you. Michael, for those who may not have lived in a cave, who may not know as much about you or your work, can you briefly start with a brief kind of professional background? And I'm particularly curious if you're current focused. Sure. Engineer, sometimes say recovering engineer, because I'm still sort of working on the, the implications. Harvard, game theory, decision theory, taught at Harvard for 13 years, founded a consulting company, mostly work and have worked for the last almost 20 years, David, on helping leaders make successful transitions into new roles. You, One of the things, many things you're really well known for is the book, The First 90 Days. What, Michael, I've, I've always believed I learn as much about my own books after they're published because people will read them and they'll challenge your assumptions and some of the, the assertions you've made. Are there some things you've learned since the release of that seminal work that either refute your suppositions in the book or reinforce them? Well, of course, David, everything has been reinforced, right? As you know, well, I'm kidding, of course. So, so like the book was written originally 2003. I did a second edition in 2012 because so much had changed, right, in, in the interim, including, you know, a fair amount of technology change, globalization had accelerated. And I'm actually just winding up right now to do a third edition of the book because so much has changed again. And so when you say the book, it's kind of a, a little bit of a moving target. And I, I try to incorporate what I learned 
pretty continuously into what I write. Are, are there big things that I think were wrong about the original? Yeah, no. Was there much more depth and nuance to, to certain ones? And I'll just give you a really quick example, like when you show up and how you plan to show up for a brand new job before you even arrive. There was virtually nothing in the original book about that subject, right? But it turns out to be incredibly important, right? And so it's something I'm really working on very actively now, which is how do you arrive well in a new job? And that will go into the, the new edition. I, I guess there's been a couple of points of contention, right? You know, so, so people have sometimes said that I, I said transitions take 90 days. And if you read carefully, I never say that, right? Transitions take the time they take, depending on the situation, right? And so, you know, my viewpoint on this has always been use the first 90 days as efficiently and as effectively as possible. So that would be one. I think secure early wins. I got some pushback around secure early wins. I mean, I believe you need early wins to get, gain momentum. People sometimes, you know, in, interpreted that as just kind of doing easy things, you know, quick wins to do things. And so I had to do some thinking about when I say early wins, what do I really mean, right? And then, again, getting getting a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more granular. I'm particularly interested in that uh, arriving well. Can you give our audience one or two glimpses? Sure. Absolutely, right? So, you know, these days I mostly coach CEOs. And those CEOs are either, you know, internally promoted. So one I'm working with right now is CFO promoted to, you know, CEO of a big healthcare chain. Other situations, it's folks that are coming in from the outside. They've often, you know, been CEOs previously, but maybe they're taking a bigger role, David, or, or moving to a different even industry, right? And so there is time before you are formally in the job. Now, you might think, ah, you know, let's just, I'll just take a break. You know, I've got a couple months and, you know, I go recharge my batteries. Really bad instinct, right? And I always tell people I work with that because there's so much you can do before you're formally in the role. And you can do things that you can't do after you're in the role because you're just too busy and there's too much going on. And, and, and you also have learned interesting things about this. For example, people will tell you things before you're in the role that they wouldn't tell you after you're there. I have no idea why that's the case, right? But there's something about the fact that you're not yet in the position of authority that makes people more open, right, to, to sharing things with you. And so when I'm working with a CEO, I'm planning in pretty exquisite detail what they're going to do where, when they're going to arrive, what are their key messages, what are the symbolic acts they want they're going to, you know, commit, how are they going to signal what they care about. There's a huge amount of, of the arrival process that is, that is about planning that messaging and connection. But there's also a whole bunch of stuff you can do up front that's about learning about the new organization and to a degree connecting to it. It's an incredibly valuable time. I couldn't agree more to do your due diligence, to really align kind of your, your game plan. So your research shows leaders who derail or underperform in this new role fall into some common traps in the first 90 days. Can you talk about what are the more prevailing traps and why do you believe they continue to stumble when we're talking about seemingly very competent, very capable leaders? It, so, so it's interesting you asked that one, David, because the very first research I ever did on transitions was about common traps, right? It seemed like a natural place to start to kind of dig in. Very little had been written about this. So people just kept falling into the traps again and again and again. And so I just went out and, you know, did a whole bunch of qualitative research to look at what's, you know, what was going on with the hope that I would help people not fall into them, even though they, as you point out, still do, right? The, the biggest single one is, I call it sticking with what you know, 
right? Thinking that's what has made you successful up to this point in your career, you know, or in this kind of, you know, function or type of business that you're in is going to continue to make you successful as you go into a new role. And, you know, there certainly are job changes you can make where it's basically you're doing the same thing, right? But most of them involve you learning new new skills, new capabilities, stepping up and showing up differently, perhaps, than you did before, adapting to a new culture, you know, if you're onboarding into a new organization. And so relying too much on what's made you successful from in the past can be a real trap when you go into a new role. And so even when I'm coaching CEOs, and I know this is going to sound crazy, right, but I'm very early on, I'm, I'm, I'm asking them, what capabilities do you need to build to be great in this role? And what do you need to be doing less of, right, that maybe you love doing? And what do you need to be doing more of that perhaps you're not so wonderful at, at doing? And so just recognizing that, you know, almost always there's going to be a big learning you know, challenge for you as a new leader. And in some circumstances, if you don't get that, you really are going to derail because the capabilities required for the new role are just really pretty different from, from the previous one. Talking about capabilities that are different from previous ones, this global pandemic has forced a lot of managers, a lot of leaders to lead remotely. Yep. You've tackled this idea, this this challenges managing virtual teams bring. Can you highlight what you believe managers need to think about and do differently to succeed? Uh, Michael, particularly in the post-pandemic, what I'm calling kind of a hybrid world of work? So, so I'm glad you, you qualified that, David, right? Because I see so much of what we've been doing as kind of band-aids, right? Kind of making do with what we can do virtually, trying to keep our teams sustained over time. You know, and, and I think there's real limits to that. And I, th- I think we're seeing those limits, right? The ability to sustain a shared culture, the ability to really keep people connected, the, the ability to do innovation. What the research is showing is that there's real limits on your ability to do those things in the virtual world, right? And so a colleague of mine at uh, IMD, where I teach now business school in Switzerland, Robert Hoiberg and I have been doing a whole bunch of research on this. And we started by asking, you know, if we were not constrained from meeting in person, but we have this amazing new technology that obviously, you know, increases efficiency dramatically, reduces cost dramatically. What do we expect that the equilibrium would look like, right? And what is it that you want to do virtually? And what is it you want to do together? Because to, to us, at least, that points the direction for where the future of work is eventually going to go, right? We'll talk about bumps on the road getting there, of course, right? And what you find is that if it's one-on-one work, I mean, I do all my coaching now virtually. I'm not going to go back to doing a lot of coaching, you know, in person. I'll do some, right? But it works extremely well. If it's transactional in teams, right? We're coordinating, we're sharing information. That works really well. If we're trying to innovate, right? If we're trying to deeply collaborate and build a new strategy, if we're trying to, you know, create a shared culture or a set of connections, the virtual modality, as good as it is, really, you know, doesn't do a great job with those things. And so we think, and I, you know, certainly believe this, that once the pandemic's over, we're going to see organizations shifting to a modality where they operate in distinct modes, right? A typical team, let's say it's your team, is going to spend a lot of time operating virtually, right? Doing the one-on-one oversight, doing the coordination, you know, solving simple problems, um, you know, dealing with operational issues, and they're going to come together periodically, and we don't know exactly what the periodic 
frequency will be to do that deeper work of connectivity and innovation and so on. And so that, to us at least, is what the hybrid world of work looks like. And the implications then for leaders are you've got to be very capable of operating in two quite distinct modes, right? We call them virtual coordination mode and you know in-person collaboration mode. And so our thinking about building leaders in the future is in part in helping them understand the roles that they play in those different, those different, you know, operating and, and leading in those very different modalities. You've spoken of self-assessment, and I genuinely believe we don't make enough time to think and, and do some reflection. But for leaders to really ascertain whether they aspire to enterprise leadership, Michael, what have you found to be the biggest surprise in that self-assessment? And which shifts do you believe are most important for leaders to work on developing themselves? So I, I think I, just the first part of your question is just such a deep question off, off right off the bat, right? Because you look at the leaders that I work with, they are overwhelmingly in action. They are doing, 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 and more doing, right? They're not necessarily in what we would describe as being mode, right? Receptive, reflective, able to think a little bit about what's going on, maybe do a little bit of longer term planning. And so even before we get to the the deeper question you're asking, David, there's there's work that we do with leaders that's really about helping them balance the doing and the being pieces, right? The rational and the emotional. And to us, at least these days, it's a core part of leadership development just because of the dynamicism of what's going on. And then the second question you asked is really about preparation to go to enterprise leadership levels, right? And And this actually connects to the first question you asked about traps because moving to enterprise leadership is one of those times where the capabilities you require to be successful are just really different often than what they've been that's got you to that particular point in your career, right? And so we built up a framework, or I built up a framework for doing that, for helping leaders assess themselves. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples rather than getting into too much detail, right? Moving from being a tactician to a strategist. Enterprise leaders need to be effective strategists. Of course, your inbuilt capabilities are part of it, but there's a lot you can do to develop your capacity for strategic thinking. One example. Second example, and these are actually the ones I see being probably the most important. I call it the warrior to diplomat. You're competitive, you're focused, you're driving, you know, and all of a sudden you've got to be conducting the equivalent of diplomacy inside your organization, building alliances, right? Because there aren't right answers and people are pursuing their agendas, projecting influence externally. So, you know, that sort of self-assessment, first of all, asking yourself, do I want to be an enterprise leader, right? And then asking yourself, okay, right, what are the major shifts I need to undertake to, to, to get myself there, get myself ready to be there? I'm fascinated by your inquiry early on of, do I want to be an enterprise leader? What are some of the pitfalls? What would be some of the pushbacks for someone to say, that's not really my cup of tea. Look, you know, the, the standing joke about this is for enterprise leaders, I, you know, I have work-life balance. My work is my life. <laughs> you know, it's it's all consuming to be at the top of large organizations, right? You're making real sacrifices in terms of your personal lives, your connections to your family, you know, and you've just got to be prepared to do that, right? I, I and it's not uncommon, by the way, for when CEOs reach the end of their careers and retire to, for them to go into crisis, you know, get divorced, a whole lot of things happen because, you know, that which has made life meaningful for them, the core sense of their identity is wrapped up in being that executive. And, 
you know, those two ideas connect, right? In order to be an enterprise executive, you better be prepared for that level of commitment. And if you make that level of commitment, you better realize that your identity is going to be firmly anchored in that. And you better be asking yourself, well, what what happens beyond that point? Does that make sense, David, to you? It, it absolutely does. So I'm really curious. Do you believe this pandemic has created more time for that self-reflection? And I, I don't know about you. I'm talking to a lot of leaders who are just not like you, you alluded to it as well, just not that excited about getting back on the road a couple hundred days a year. <laughs> Well, again, there's there's such a such a great such great questions, right? I think that you know many many people that I work with have really enjoyed aspects of the virtual work life world, right? There's a lot more flexibility, right? There's a lot less you know time spent doing stupid things like commuting, you know that the the boundary between finishing work and going and being with your family is really low, but most of them still yearn for more connection. Than they're getting today, which gets us back to that conversation about what hybrid work is going to look like in the future. But I do think that companies, many companies, I, I won't name names here, but I see a few are really thinking about the return to work completely wrong. <laughs> they're thinking about it in terms of, okay, you know, we're going to have people in the office for three days, and we're going to have people at home for two days. And, you know, what I say these days is you don't return to work until you've reimagined work, given what we've learned, right? And that gets back to the conversation about what works well virtually. How often do we really need to get people together? What are we going to do when, when we do that? Because the companies that bring people back together for two or three days a week are rapidly going to find that those people feel like they're wasting a lot of their time, that they could be working virtually. And they'll also find there's times when they should be together and they're not. And so, you know, it's going to take time, David. I think they're, they're, you know, the other big factor that's going to drive this is CFOs, right? Who have very much, you know, learned and paid attention to the reduction in costs associated with having people working virtually. And that's, that's, you know, direct employee costs. It's also real estate. I mean, we could have an entire conversation. I know we won't today about the future of the office, which is, I think, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to be in commercial real estate today, right? Thinking about what the, the future of the office is going to look like. I, I absolutely buy in on your assertion that, you know, think about the next role. What experiences should you develop? What should you think about your, your success factors in that next position? In, in the development plan, what experiences do you believe will be most impactful? And Michael, again, I want to focus a lens on the post-pandemic kind of future of that enterprise value creation. What, what what do you see as some of that development that those leaders really need to immerse themselves in? So, you know, the answer pre-pandemic would have been, if you're operating a global business, you'd want to be in the various sectors of the business. You'd want to, you know, have exposure to enough of the functions to be effective. You'd want to spend time in different geographies. You know, that's the kind of standard experience formula that takes people to the top, you know, it makes them, you know, plausible candidates. I think that it's just such an interesting question, right? Because the whole notion of kind of regional roles, for example, I think is just going to kind of go away, right? Because we now have the ability to do things virtually globally. I think you're going to see businesses organizing themselves in entirely different ways, right? The example, I, I was talking with someone recently about this. She has a dear friend who's pretty senior in a bank and, and basically operates core clients across a, a broad range of industries uh, for Scandinavia, right? And she's based in, in Denmark. 
And she's really worried, right? Because, you know, she hasn't had to travel. Things are going perfectly fine, right? It's more efficient. So they're going to need less people like her. And it's probably going to make more sense to, to focus someone like her on a particular type of client globally rather than on someone in regions. So, and I'm getting around to your question. I know I'm taking a bit of time to get there, right? Which is, I think the enterprise leaders of the future need to start by envisioning the organization of the future and asking where the most critical activities are going to come because the recipe to get to the top is to put yourself in the core. That's the recipe, right? The core recipe for getting to the top of an organization is don't be in the periphery, be in the core. And if the core is changing, right, then, you know, folks have to be really thinking hard about what do I need to do to either stay in the core, right, or find the new core and be a part of it. Does that, do you see what I'm, what I'm saying? David? I, I am. I, I absolutely see it. The, the challenge is that core is a pretty expensive real estate. There's only so many seats at that table. So, Michael, that makes a lot of sense. My thought is the core seems to be fairly expensive real estate, right? So there's only a few available seats. Not everybody can be in that core. What are you coaching folks to both identify, but also really make themselves a very viable candidate to be brought into those core opportunities, initiatives, direction? Yeah, I guess a couple of things come to mind right off the top, right? One is visibility, right? So it's the old size, you know, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And I had a really interesting example of this recently with a client, right, who is running a major business, global pharmaceutical company, he's got some regional, you know, presidents working for him. And he's talking to the head of this particular sector of the business about his people. And there's one of them, you know, who's running a major region. And that very senior leader goes, I don't, I don't, I don't know her, right? He, he, he she, you know, Everybody else was known, but that particular person, even though they were in a very senior role, hadn't somehow become visible to people at the higher level. Now, that, of course, gets us in the question of how do you become visible, right? And the CEO of, of Novartis, I think, had a nice uh, way of describing his career, which is it, it running towards the fire, right? Finding the things where you can add value, you know, where you can step up and do something, maybe not even necessarily glamorous things. Right. So that would be a, a couple of things. I think pitch your wagon to someone who's visionary and moving up in the organization would be another, right? Become the trusted lieutenant. The CEO of a biotech company I work with once described, you know, these sorts of people as her weight bearing lieutenants, right? The people who she could she could really count on. So I think, you know, and, and understand that it's, you know, it is a, a highly competitive game. But if you play it purely as a competitive game, you're probably going to lose because you need allies, right? You need connectivity. You need those critical alliances to, to move yourself upward. Some great insights. With the evolving executive education landscape, mm. and I got to tell you, I, I struggle with a lot of executive education programs because I think they're incredibly stale and outdated. But where do you believe forward-thinking leaders can get the most relevant development in strategy, in integration, in agenda setting that I've heard you talk about? So I think, first of all, I agree with you, right? A lot of the, the traditional style exec ed is, is not, is, is stale, right? And isn't going to stand up particularly well, you know, I think post-pandemic. I guess a couple of responses, right? So we kind of, 
we, me at IND and others, we try to practice what we preach, right? And so today, when we're building programs, we're building blended programs where the time together is focused on those things that we think the time together really creates value doing, right? And it's that deeper connection between people. It's that ability to do some innovation, right? There's, we call it structured serendipity, right? The thing, letting things happen that, you know, might not have happened if, you, if you're apart. And not just sort of bringing people together for the sake of bringing them together, right? And recognizing, again, that the technology can do so many things to leverage the power of development. You know, you, you should never listen to anything that even remotely resembles a lecture in person. That's an utter waste of your time. And of course, most business schools, you're not getting lectured to, but you're still getting pieces of content that are being given to you in real time in a classroom. And that's today a complete waste of time. So that'd be one piece of the answer, you know, for business schools. I think another piece of the answer is, you know, there's a model and it's been around for a while that says leadership development consists of sort of 70% experience which means you got to get the right experience, which gets back to the point you made earlier about how do you get those those key roles, right? It's 20% mentoring and coaching, and it's 10% formal development, right? So right away, you know, we're back into a conversation about what what experiences should we have? What mentors can we get, right, as leaders to help propel us forward? What coaching, perhaps, we can we get? But also that, that last 10% kind of needs to be blown up, I think. Right. Because, you know, you can do so much these days. And I'll give you an example, right? A, a client we're working with right now that's building out their corporate strategy. Right. And so they're on an exercise to build a, a strategy for 2025. And we said to them, why don't you take some of your, you know, up and covers two levels below and get them engaged in the process? And we'll overlay some leadership development on top of that. Right. So it's kind of action learning meets drip learning. Right. And all of a sudden, you're doing something that is a mix of experience and mentoring and formal development all in a single experience. And, you know, they said, yeah, well, we're up for doing that. And, and you know, it's it's really, really powerful. So I think it's things like that, David, where we just need to kind of rethink in some ways you know, the, the way we think about developing leaders. Uh, talking about developing leaders, one of the things that I cringe at is this whole diversity, equity, inclusion initiative. Michael, in a lot of places, candidly, sounds like lip service, right? Yep. W- where do you believe real DE&I can change or, or change can occur at, at really the organizational level through learning, through development, through some of what you're advocating, which is leaders to really think and lead differently? Yeah, well, that's such a, an interesting and, and deep and, and important subject these days, right? And I agree with you that there are organizations that are very much in the box checking mode with this, right? And the box checking mode often consists of, you know, focusing mostly on the diversity side of the equation. Do we have enough of category X? Do we have enough of category Y? Is it okay if we have, you know, significant number of category X people at a lower level, but not very, very much at an upper level? It's kind of this almost like, how do we how do we make sure we're not going to become a target, right? It's, it's a very defensive kind of approach to doing it. What they're not focusing on, almost certainly for those companies, is the equity side. And equity to me is, you know, the core of equity is compensation and benefits, right? And are you paying people equivalently for doing equivalent work? And the answer is not, not really, right? And so 
you know, the organizations that are much more serious about this are looking at, at equity, right? They're looking at compensation and they may not be adjusting everyone, you know, to a, a same base, but they're on a trajectory for doing it. And then there's the inclusion piece, right? Which, you know, that's where the rubber really hits the road because there you're in all the world of unconscious biases and, and are people being given access, right, to the right networks, to the right experiences. And I don't mean jobs. I mean, you know, the, the fine-grained set of experiences that are going on. And, you know, there's very few companies that have climbed up the ladder from, first of all, doing diversity with in good faith, right, wanting to find great candidates, right, of equivalent ability and including them on the slates for key positions, right, to going and taking a look at the equity piece and being serious about it because of the economics of it. And then, you know, just saying, okay, we're going to grapple with, you know, deeply with the unconscious bias part of this. It, it's, by the way, I'm, I'm reflecting, it's funny you asked me this, because for some reason, probably 70% of my clients are diverse in the sense of being women, people of color, or gay, right? Or some combination of those three. And so I don't know why that's true. But it's pretty wonderful. And I get some perspective on the much more, you know, the much deeper challenges they face. And we did some research recently with our coaching network, asking them about the challenges that diverse leaders face. And, you know, those challenges often show up almost immediately when someone takes a new job because they're excluded from a key, a key network, right? Or they're held to a double standard, David, right? Or, you know, they're expected to be a standard bearer for all other people that are in the same, the same, you know, demographic category that they are. So, you know, I, I think the net of all this is this is a long term, you know, journey we're on. I do see companies doing it really well. I, I do some work with Johnson and Johnson, and I think they've really stepped up around this, around all of those, those elements. But they were also a company that already had a lot of women in senior positions even before, you know the current uh, furor. You're exactly right that it's not an easy or a short-term fix. And I'm fascinated by by your client mix and whether that was intentional or just no. serendipitously. And, do we no, get, and I, I, I even have an explanation for why it's the, why, why my clients are what they are, right? Because... Please. Yeah, well, no, the, you know, so why am I interested in transitions and why did it resonate so deeply for me, right? And, it, you know, I mean, in, in retrospect, it was, it's obvious, but... You know, between the ages of three and, and 11, I moved seven times. My, my father was uh, working on power dam projects in northern Canada and, you know, we, we were power line projects. And so every year or so, we'd pick up and move to a new place. And every year or so, I had to fit back in again. And every year or so, I felt like the outsider and the underdog. And so I think it's, there's just been almost this unconscious migration towards people that are struggling right to and a very deep desire to help them win right because i view every leader in transition as on a quest and they're the hero right and and i'm going to help them you know be the hero in in that particular quest i i love that because it's a nice segue into my next question which is you know there are some attributes in all of our past that i believe could be strong predictors of our future success michael you you've studied this you coach a lot of executive are there some attributes you look for that give you a not necessarily a perfect predictor but but a strong predictor of this person's going to do really well in that core or really do well in that enterprise leadership role so part of it's just what you're born with 
David, right? I mean, I, I'm working with a CEO right now who's just this exceptional strategic thinker. And has he worked hard at it, doing it? Sure. Was he just born with some of the capability? I absolutely believe that's the case, right? So, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, sit here and tell you that anyone can be an extraordinary strategic thinker. And being an effective, at least, strategic thinker, I think, is a prerequisite for, for being an enterprise leader. But as I said earlier, I think there's a lot you can do to develop it. I mean, it's a bit trite, but curiosity and lifelong learning, the, the adaptability I see in these people, right? Because they're dealing with such rapidly shifting environments and uncertainty and complex. And, and somehow they have that, that mix of adaptability and curiosity. They learn very rapidly, right? They, you know, th those pieces I think are, are key. Again, I, you know, a watchword these days, resilience, right? You know, and, and when, what, when you see folks, going through the, the highly demanding schedules they normally go through and then deal with something like the current crisis and, and remain with some sense of equanimity, right? And ability to be present for their people. You, you know, you're dealing with some, you know, people that are pretty exceptional. And again, some of that I think probably is just born into them. It's baked into them. Some of it's probably experienced, right? I, I you know, I personally suffered some pretty significant health challenges and, I came through them successfully, and I attribute that a lot of that to my mother, right? Who is just this extraordinarily optimistic, resilient, you know, person, right? So certainly, family upbringing, I think, plays a plays a role in it too. Michael Curvebenders, my my forthcoming book is at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and personal reinvention. Thinking about your own journey, are there some coaching or advice you received? that you believe have had a profound impact on shaping the leader you've become? Well, it's kind of a trick question, David, because in some senses, I'm not a classic leader, right? I mean, I, I am, I do, you know, I did co-found and lead a consulting company, right? But my leadership is more an intellectual kind of leadership, right? With ideas, frameworks, working with folks that are doing things. So I don't put myself really in the same category as the people that I that I coach, right? I need to understand enough about what they face. I need to be an effective sounding board. I need to become a trusted advisor. But I wouldn't describe myself as the same kind of leader that they are. And so, you know, for me, the, the most important advice that I've gotten has really been more about how to be an effective, trusted advisor to folks, right? How to really connect with people, how to create a safe space within which someone who can't talk to anybody else about what they're facing can, can just let it all hang out and know that, you know, there's no danger, right? That I'm going to offer them if they needed some comfort, if they needed a kick in the ass, you know, if they needed some resources that'll help. And there's been a few folks along the line that I've learned some key things about doing that well. And that both is as an educator, which is the other part of my identity, but it's also as, as a coach. You know, one guy in particular, Dan Champa, who I actually co-authored a book with, he's just this very accomplished trusted advisor. He's written something on trusted advisors. And I just by, you know, being with him and watching what he did, almost like an apprenticeship, I learned a huge amount. And by the way, you know, it's funny, we go back to the question of becoming an enterprise leader. Apprenticeships are part of the story, right? They're, they're part of finding someone, maybe it's a great strategic thinker from whom you can learn. You know, again, a key part of getting to those very senior positions. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? Sure. So, so the easiest way always is LinkedIn. I, I manage my own LinkedIn 
profile. I always reach, you know, and, and respond to people when they reach out to me. So that's certainly one good way. You know, the first 90 days book, if you're taking a new role or some of the other books and articles are written that Harvard Business Review would be a good way to go. If you want to learn more about kind of helping people in your organization make transitions, then my leadership development company, Genesis, www.genesisadvisors with an ERS at the end.com. For our audience, if you joined us late, you've been listening to Michael Watkins, world renowned for his international bestseller, The First 90 Days but also a professor of leadership and organizational change at IMD Business School. And as mentioned, I'm convinced Michael is a uh, C-level executive whisperer. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you for your insights. Thanks for being our guest on the Curve Vendors podcast today. It's a pleasure, David. By the way, three quick points. We turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. You can find those in our online private community called The Forum. So check that out at norgroup.com slash forum. Number two, we've completely revamped our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version coming up. So check that out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. And lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So check out our various social media channels with the hashtag CurveBenders for the latest updates. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Watkins. I got to tell you, I've been an admirer of his work ever since the first time I read his book, The First 90 Days. Uh, what, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I took about, uh, three pages of notes and, uh, it's, it's really great to hear how astutely he's thinking about this idea of transition and more recently leading virtual teams and, uh, the continued challenges, as I said, seemingly competent, capable leaders have in some of these roles. So this is the NOR summary notes. Hopefully in three minutes or less, I can summarize this session for you and give you some practical ideas to implement. Number one, really listen to his comments about, and I would encourage you to check out the common traps, but but I, I still see it. A lot of leaders depend on their capabilities in their past that has made them successful versus really thinking about what is it going to take in this new role. And it's not just going to a new company, new role, any new initiative. If you're in that growth, if you're in that digital, if you're in that entrepreneurial mindset that I write about and wrote about in, in Curvebenders, you're always thinking about new capabilities. What do I need to learn to really succeed in this new role? And less about what have you done in the past. That, that might be a great foundation to build on, but ideal if you're really thinking about new skills, new capabilities. Number two, this idea of virtual teams. I couldn't agree more. I talk a lot about uh, one-to-one, one-to-few, and one-to-many. One-to-one, virtual makes all the sense in the world. One-to-few still virtually makes a lot of sense. One-to-many, I believe, more in person is going to really impact. uh, And I love his comment. What does equilibrium look like? What does that hybrid work look like? So modality and and distinct distinct, uh, modules in that hybrid world is going to be really, really, uh, really important. Self-assessment, uh, ac- action versus being. 
right? So receptive, reflective, long-term planning. He talked a lot about uh, not enough leaders invest time and effort, hence the title of the session, Reimagining Work, really thinking about, you know, differently about returning to work. It isn't just a physical two days in the office, three days out. How do we reimagine? How do we really rethink completely about that work? By the way, your good chance your CFO is going to have a lot to say because of the enormous cost savings during this pandemic. Uh, last but not least, you know, again, I really appreciate his insights about, um, you know, predictors of, of successful future leaders, right? Curiosity, adaptability, lifelong learning, and doing that rapidly. So are you asking yourself these questions? Are you really internalizing your own personal and professional growth? Just as a quick reminder, uh, Michael is going to be our uh, guest on a LinkedIn Live uh, so stay tuned for exact dates on that. Those are always at noon Eastern. Number two, I turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles and post them in our private online community called the NOR Forum. So I hope you'll join us at norgroup.com slash forum. Number three, some amazing, amazing guests coming up. Uh, so I hope you'll subscribe to the Curve Vendors podcast wherever you consume podcasts or at NOR Group, N-O-U-R group.com slash podcast. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.